Hello and welcome to this week's Bunker Roundtable with me, Andrew Harrison. Coming up in today's edition, we look at the government's exciting legislative programme to solve Britain's cost of living crisis by privatising Channel 4, locking up all the eco-warriors and winding up the wet liberals. Plus, as Lee Anderson MP tells people who use food banks that they too could cook meals for 30p if only they weren't so lazy and had professional kitchens and chefs to help them, we look at the endless theatre around frugality. And we say goodbye to the single greatest thing ever as Apple withdraws the last incarnation of its world-changing music player, its R.I.P. to the iPod, or R.I.Pod. What will we miss about it and what discontinued tech should come back from the digital grave? All that and more on this week's Bunker. Welcome back to The Bunker. Remember, we can do what we do because of the generous support of listeners like you on the crowdfunding site Patreon. Back us for as little as £2 a month and you'll help us to keep making independent podcasts every day. And you'll get smart extras like early ad-free editions of the podcast and tasty merchandise too. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more or just follow the links in the show notes. Now, let's meet today's panel. First up, welcome back to journalist, author and regular in the bunker, Marie LeConte. Hi, Marie. Hello. So uh, you've got a bit of good news. Uh, starting next month, you're going to be writing a fortnightly column in The New Statesman. Yes, I am. Thank How you did you much. swing that one? That's great. <laughs> and I, I think it's just by annoying them. So I actually mm. did my first internship at The New Statesman nearly 10 years ago now. Mm. Um, fun story. I had an anonymous Twitter account at the time, which I used to basically live tweet everything that happened uh, in that office while I was there. <laughs> what I had not realised was that Helen Lewis, uh, who was then the deputy editor of The New Statesman, uh, knew of that account. Um, and just at the end, I had this lovely meeting with her to get feedback and everything. And she was very kind. And she kind of, just as she was leaving, she was like, by the way, be careful what you tweet. Could she say, <laughs> it's dot, 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 Marie LeConte's account? <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, what's great is that I did not learn that lesson at all um, okay. in 10 years. But but yeah, and, and it got me a column at the NS 10 years down the line. So Fair, here yeah, we are. Playing the long game. Now, um, I see that you were Eurovisioning on Saturday. The UK came second after Ukraine, which means that technically we won it. Um, has the healing begun? Does this mean that the rest of Europe actually has decided it no longer hates Britain? I feel like I'm not the right person to ask her because I really, <laughs> really did not want Britain to do well. Mm. Um, you know, but I feel like, you know, I'm French and I know I've been here for 13 years, but I'm already backing England at football. Let's not get carried away. I can't just start backing you guys at everything. So I really wanted you to lose, really wanted France to do well. So no, I don't care. I think Europe has started to embrace Britain again. And I hate it. Oh, well, OK. Well, I mean, I only half heard what was going on and I thought... We've sent Sean Ryder to represent us in the Eurovision Song Guides. Why not? Hail Mary, give it a go. Um, also with us is writer and editor Justin Quirk. All right, Justin. Hello, Andrew. You've been looking at El Salvador, the country which last year became the first one to make Bitcoin legal tender and has now seen a, its crypto bro experiment turn very sour. What's happened? Uh, yes, Andrew, I regret to inform listeners that it would appear lashing the economy of an already unstable country to an incredibly volatile, unproven asset appears to have been a suboptimal idea. Um, the very short version is that President Nayib Bukele announced in September that El Salvador would become the first country in the world to accept bitcoins as legal tender. They forked out $105 million from the reserve on the digital currency. The value of that investment has since dropped by a nosebleeding 45%. I mean, they would have been better off spending it on scratch cards. I mean, it's, it's insane. There's also a completely mental plan for a crypto-funded city that was supposedly going to rise up the side of a volcano in the country south. I mean, just for a reminder, El Salvador is the country with the world's highest murder rate. 
I mean, this is like not the place where utopia is going to unfold, I don't think. Which Marvel supervillain is planning this economy but, with the Cryptopolis <laughs> on the side of a volcano? But it looks like it. I mean, if you look online, there are photos of them looking at this giant golden scale model of this insane folly. But the... I mean, the, the aspect of this story that's playing out behind it all is that the value of Tether, which is basically the backstop currency of crypto, always meant to trade at $1 per Tether, has dropped below that. So essentially, almost everyone with crypto holdings is underwater and is going mental as a result because fortunes are just evaporating. Um, I mean, the slightly more serious and really frustrating point is that by a lot of measures, El Salvador has been doing really well in terms of poverty reduction over the last decade. You know, they've dropped rates of absolute poverty, went from 39% in 2007 to 22.3%. But it was done by really boring, long-term, prudent financial planning. It wasn't done by some absolute grifter turning up saying, would you like to buy some magic beans? Um, I mean, I'd... I would recommend listeners, if you haven't heard it, we interviewed Amy Caster on the Bunker Daily a couple of months ago. She's one of the main journalists and crypto sceptics who's been digging in very hard to all this stuff. She's a really, really good primer on why this whole thing is such an enormous grift. Our special guest today is Hannah Fern, who writes for The Independent, The Eye, The Guardian and lots of other places. Welcome to The Bunker, Hannah. Hello, thanks for having me. Um, so I noticed this week in Let's Poke Everybody's Class Nerves News, you spotted that the Office of National Statistics is now tracking pret a purchases yes. as an index of the economic recovery and that your birthplace, Yorkshire, is steaming ahead 25% up on the pre-pandemic figures. We don't expect this of Yorkshire. Are they selling pies in, in Pret now? It honestly really surprised me. I think my dad, who's actually from Derbyshire, would be shocked mm. to discover this. Uh, yeah, the highest rate of return to Pret is in Yorkshire. Who but, would have guessed? I know, because Pret is kind of seen as one of those, it's it, the kind of glib thing a politician will say as a marker of your kind of middle classness you know you're sitting there eating a pret on your peloton watching netflix and yet it's yorkshire absolutely handed yorkshire i think this like nicely skewers the idea that there's this metropolitan liberal elite coming up with all of the policy ideas in london and has nothing to do with the rest of the country if if that's where we're getting the most sandwiches yeah we are all metropolitan elite now absolutely While we're on class, what did you make of the Cambridge academic Professor David Abalafia saying that white, privately educated boys are the new disadvantaged? I have to say I found it um, quite an unpalatable statement. In a month that we are in currently where we are hosting refugees from Ukraine, I've also been writing uh, this month um, for an upcoming publication about what's happened to the Afghan refugees who are still living in hotels. I've been speaking to them. And also while we're facing a really troubling cost of living crisis, the idea that a bunch of very, very well-to-do um, young white men from upper middle class and upper class families going to the best schools in the country are in some way deeply disadvantaged, I find it quite grotesque. But they're in crisis. Only 48 Etonians got into Cambridge last year. It's, what a, it's crisis. a crisis. Yeah. <laughs> I'm actually weeping right now. People come see this, but I'm just crying in the studio. I thought, I'm a scumbag. I'm scumbag college, yes. Let's start with the government's bold new legislative programme to combat the cost of living crisis by privatising Channel 4, locking up environmental protesters and ostentatiously ripping up EU regulations. It's just what your gas bill ordered. Last week, the government unveiled their Queen's speech described as 38 bills of awfulness on our 
companion podcast, Oh God, What Now?, by guest Leila Moran. The key purpose of the seven big bills seems to be just staring up the Tory base, creating headlines in friendly papers and annoying opponents. So what are these bills designed to achieve? And will they actually make their way to royal assent or just the front page of the mail? Marie, let's start with the public order bill, uh, which is supposedly aimed at cracking down on protesters like XR and Insulate Britain specifically on the practice of locking on, i.e. gluing yourself to things. People have pointed out that you know, things like votes for women or the legalisation of trade unions or same-sex relationships would probably not have happened without exactly this kind of protest. So, you know, how much of this is theatre, to, just to be seen to be doing something like this? I So I suspect what will happen, if I were to guess, is that that law is going to pass with some amendments, but it will pass. And then, you know, with not a lot of noise made, so I suspect some bits of the left will say, hey, guys, this is a problem. Um, and no one will really care. And then about in about two years or something, there will be some like really well-meaning, quite popular protest that happens. A lot of the people will get arrested and basically locked up and probably get some heavy fines or short sentences in prison and stuff. And then everyone will be outraged and say, what? Hang on, what? That's possible. Um, th- th- that is my, yes, somewhat pessimistic view. So I, I, I think it will happen and basically not matter until it does. Mm. Anna. I mean, I think there is some theatre in it in that way, that it's playing to a base. But I think there's a troubling undertone that's easily Mm. overlooked. So Boris would love us to think that this is all about locking up the eco-activists who stop you getting to school on the school run quickly enough in in your car. Actually, if you think about the roots of uh, these policy ideas, they come back from the riots in 2011. And some of the powers that are included in in this bill included greater stop and search for protesters. And when you think about who that's going to actually impact on, we're looking at black communities, poorer Mm. communities. So there's a subtext there that's Mm. worrying. And I think it's overlooked when we um, look at the kind of culture wars side of it. Mm. And as a tiny side note as well, I cannot wait for the next editorial in a Tory supporting paper to talk about Boris the Great Libertarian. (laughs) Because it will happen. It will, I give it at most three months until there's another story saying, oh, you know, famed libertarian Boris Johnson. Well, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that is systematically dismantled in the House of Lords before returning to the Commons. What sort of disposition are we seeing from the Lords to this kind of stuff at the moment? Because pretty much the last round of bills were all battered back, weren't they? Yes, and definitely, you know, and that's not new at all. In the last parliamentary session, uh, the Lords made themselves heard very much so, like again and again and again. And I think that will absolutely happen again with this session. And and, you know, and I think they're definitely up for a fight because if you think about it as well, Brexit, especially all the all the you know, the one million and a half Brexit votes we had over the past few years, I think really changed the mood in the Lords and changed you know, the way some people operate there and how much of a fight they're willing to put. So, so yeah, no, I think, you know, they will get back in the news. How much will they be able to do, apart from maybe some more minor amendments? We'll see. But I think, you know, we'll definitely hear more about them, um, yeah, in the next few months. Can't wait. Is the country thirsting to see people with blue hair in the dock, you know, or is it really something that's kind of being played out on the front of the mail? As a tiny side note, I was going to open this by saying that um, I was actually arrested as a protester once and I'm really annoyed because I thought I had blue hair at the time, but I just <laughs> dyed it again to red. Um, yeah. So I was so close to actually being the nominal protester <laughs> at the top with the blue hair. Um, I'm, so, see, I'm not sure. It, it strikes me as, you know, and I wrote a column today on how I think nothing's really going to matter to people until the cost of living crisis is resolved. And I think that's kind of going to be that. So we'll probably get you know, the, the most hardcore of kind of Daily Mail and Sun readers and kind of TV commentators to be very happy about the fact that it's happening. But I just don't see people caring, even the people, because I think, you know, one of the things in politics we forget about a lot is not is that it's not just about whether people 
are pro against an issue. It's also how much they care. So I mm. suspect that a lot of people will probably agree with the government that fine, you know, put the hippies in prison. They're just not going to care that much. Mm. Yeah. Hannah, it often seems like strong views very weakly held. Yes, absolutely. But also I think government hasn't necessarily thought about the size of the potential, uh, I suppose, the two sides of the, the culture wars. One of the, the measures they're looking at is around universities and freedom of speech, but mm. also universities' rights to be independent to carry out things like international boycotts. Um, the student unions have had a, historically a large uh, role to play in campaigning for um, political boycotts around apartheid and so on. And they want to see an end to that. They, they, they say they don't want to see uh, universities holding sort of foreign policy rights. They want to take that back into government. But I think they've forgotten really about um, the relationship that they hold with institutions like universities. Um, traditionally, they've had quite good relations, universities and government. And, you know, this potentially stirs up a large unnecessary argument. Equally, have they forgotten that now almost 40% of young people go to university? So... Uh, if they want to court a new generation of voters, as they say they do, um, the Conservative Party are going the right way about irritating potentially 40% of young people. Um, and the fir- perhaps the first time they find politics through a student union, say. So I think it's, um, it's a strange calculation, some of the issues they've chosen to, to pick on here. I think there's also a more quotidian thing possibly behind this in that you've got a backcloth here of Police numbers, funding, investment have been cut systematically over the last 10 years at a time when we're facing, you know, we're focusing on the issue of people like Extinction Rebellion, but there's also a huge swathe of potential public order issues. And if you think how close we've come over the last two years to very major public order incidents from across the political spectrum, so everyone goes, oh, Black Lives Matter, Extinction Rebellion. You've also got people like National Reaction, the EDL stuff, which is still going on. You know, they had a massive demo up in Telford, I think, three mm. or four days ago. They're doing big film screening up there. The whole sort of anti-lockdown, anti-vax movements. There's a lot of ways that things could kick off. And I think we've been very, very lucky in the last two years that we haven't had major, major public disorder. And I think what they won't come out and say is that they're asking the police to do more and more with less and less resources. And if you won't pay for things which are boring and time-consuming, like better intelligence work, better monitoring, better you know monitoring of offender, better infiltration, then just saying to the police, here's a load more powers where you can just crack down and use a very, very blunt weapon on people, is essentially a hu- it's part of that huge cost-cutting, I think. Hannah, I want to ask you about Brexit, which we just mentioned. Six of the proposed bills are designed to, quote, make the UK more competitive after Brexit. There's a Brexit Freedoms Bill which will allow EU rules to be repealed by ministers without a vote. This seems very much like, can we play the hits of five years ago from our first album when we were popular? Does it play as well now as it did, you know, does it play as well now in the age of the cost of living crisis, which is very immediate, as it did years ago? I don't think it does. I think Marie's right that this is the cost of living crisis is the big question of our time right now. Mm. People have a lot going on in their personal lives. Of course, they also have a lot going on now with managing just getting through day to day, paying their um, electricity and gas bills, making sure that they can feed their children. And when they when it comes to politics, they're not thinking about perhaps the ideals of Brexit and our independence from Europe and, uh, and the statute, uh, the European statute book. I, I can't see um, this playing well for them any longer. I think it, it's it's lost its shine as, yeah. a, as an electoral strategy. We, we, we are being softened up for uh, Article 16, which hasn't, as we record, Article 16 is yet to be triggered, so let's not get into that one. Doubtless we'll be talking about it this time next week. From the basic level of good politicking, when 
it's becoming impossible to ignore the fact that Brexit is affecting the cost of living. I think uh, UK and a change in Europe just found that Brexit trade barriers were responsible for about 6% of the roughly 9% in food price inflation between the end of 2019 and, and uh, autumn last year. Is it good politics to remind people of Brexit at a time when they're seeing the price of everything go up and make that connection? I don't think people do make that connection, actually. However many times politicians or commentators mm. like me might like like to make it, they see the reason that um, the majority voted for Brexit is that they see their government as the primary driver of change and they expect them to be able to make a difference. And simply blaming Brexit now for what's happening at home for them won't cut it. So that's Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak's challenge, that they have to respond. They can't blame somebody else or blame a decision that the electorate made uh, five, six years ago. Um, but I wonder as well if, like, electorally, I'm not sure how it would play out anyway. And obviously, as in, like, it'd be... It would be good in a greater sense to make people aware of the fact that, you know, Brexit is behind a lot of the cost of living crisis. But like, who would change their vote or who would yeah, change the way they think about stuff as a result? Because I think, you know, Remainers would just say, OK, well, yeah, yeah, we saw that coming. That's why we voted the way we did. I think the Brexiteers who, you know, who, who voted in a like, you know, fine, we'll take a hit on the economy will probably stand by it. And then the people who are like, oh, God, actually, that was a mistake probably are a bit ashamed and don't want to be reminded, don't want to think mm. about it. So I'm not, you know, I don't think there's a constituency in the country that needs to be, in a cynical fashion, I mean, that, you know, should be reminded of the fact that this is all Brexit's fault. Justin, uh, I want to ask you about a particular bit of intelligence. The Conservative pollster James Johnson ran a focus group uh, in the upcoming by-election seat of Tiverton and Honiton, a.k.a. Tractor Porn West, as we know it. <laughs> and um, it showed that the voters... Conservative voters were utterly sick of Boris Johnson in a manner that is kind of indistinguishable from the way that we are. Yeah. I mean, some selected quotes were, Johnson is a lying buffoon, self-promoting arsehole. What can I say? He's just an idiot. <laughs> um, that, that, it's like, they are us. They're saying what we're saying. What, what are we learning from this? Are we learning that we are all actually Tories and maybe we were <laughs> the entire time? <laughs> who, who knows? Um, no, I think what it shows is probably two things. I think, firstly, that... All politicians, no matter how charmed, how despotic, how populous they are, reach a point where their luck runs out. Mm. You know, it happens. And when it does, it can often be over something which seems fairly trivial compared to a lot of what they've done. But it either just proves to be the straw that breaks the camel's back or, as with Partygate, it contains something within it that just perfectly encapsulates all of the things that people kind of suspected and didn't like. I think another example would be, say, the way that tuition fees sunk Nick Clegg. You know, again, not the worst thing he did, but there was something about that particular story. You could understand it. You could yes. fit it in your head. And it sort of tapped into the thing of, like, is he a bit of an undercover Tory? Is he a bit, you know, saying what he needed to get the votes? And I think often it's not necessarily the size of the offence, but it's just how well it sticks to the person. But I think the other thing that it shows is that I feel like the Tories are going through the same painful process that Labour went through mm. over the last five years and that they're losing touch with the actual core of their boring, often silent, you know, majority voters are and they're completely mistaking social media for real life. So what they've been engaged in to an increasing degree is basically shitposting as government. <laughs> you know, it's this constant promotion of half-formed spectator columns as policy when their core vote, which I remember it is, ex-urban, fairly elderly, you know, probably reasonably off financially and insulated from a lot of the major shocks of the economy, 
is probably concerned about stuff like buses and fly tipping and, you know, why that nice river they go for a walk down has turned a weird colour, you know, in mm. the last year. Like, there's probably stuff like that that they're more concerned about. And they can see that none of this is being addressed because the one and only job of the government now and has been for most of the past year is to cover Boris Johnson's arse and keep him in a job. Mm. By annoying the, li- annoying the likes of us. Yeah, mm. and them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, a friend of the podcast, David Allen Green, uh, blogged on this and just described it as all mere vanity legislation. As if, as you say, you know, it's, it's spectator columns. Um, Hannah and Marie, I wanted, because you're like in the thick of Westminster, morale in the Conservative Party... Parliamentary Conservative Party seems to be pretty low at the moment. How did you find that this this raft of legislation was received amongst Conservatives? What were you hearing? Um, so I'm going to give a bit of a coward's answer, but which may still be revealing in that it's just not really come up. Like, but, yeah. and, you know, and I've not, you know, um, fair's fair. Like, I, I've not spent a tremendous amount of time in Westminster in the past week or so, but I've spent some time there. It's generally just not really come up. Like, it's yeah, there, there's not, you know. That's remarkable in itself, isn't it? You would have thought there'd be some element of enthusiasm for, you know, giving James Dellingpole compensation for not being able to speak at the LSE <laughs> or whatever. I don't know. I think I think the vibe is kind of weird at the moment of, again, like things are kind of, things are going poorly, but also there's kind of no point talking about it because they've been going quite poorly for so long. Like it feels a bit like, you know, sort of like being in a long-term relationship that you know is sort of failing. Like, but but it's not, so it's not going so badly that you need to break up now. But also, you know, it's not going well. So you sort of don't mention it. Like one of those. Once you've verbalised it, you have to do something about it. Exactly. Yeah. And it's like, oh, but then it's going to be a faff, isn't it? It's going to be a faff, you know, breaking up and like moving out if you need to move out, whatever. Like, you know, so it's just like, I can tolerate this for wind. three more months. No, it, yeah, like, there's, yeah. There's no one waiting Ooh, in the wings. Yeah, no, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So you just um, sit there sort of like hoping they'll break up with you because it's like less hard work. Yeah. But they probably won't. Just to, to close this bit off, I mean, how much of this do we think is actually going to make it through the statute book? I mean, you've got, there's the easy stuff about, like I say, giving James Dellingpole compensation. There's cha- privatising Channel 4, which is just a matter of a punishment beating. And then the really authoritarian stuff that's like, as we've been talking about, hard to get past the Lords. What are we betting on from this rest of legislation that will actually happen, do you think? I Like you said, I think Channel 4 will get through. I feel... T- sad about that but I think it's inevitable I think probably you'll see some of the real window dressing stuff like the nonsense about street names and local authority powers around yeah. around planning I, I think that'll get through but I think you're right there'll be a very large pushback from the Lords on, on the stuff that comes across as authoritarian and also I think um, there's a big discussion around that at the moment I think a lot of it is overplayed this will only apply to over 18, so why um, trans conversion therapy had to be removed, I'm not sure, because it doesn't actually touch at all on where some, I think, understandable concerns around parents discussing gender exploration with children comes in. That wouldn't be covered anyway, so a lot of the kind of um, noise about that is irrelevant. So uh, I think there'll be more discussion about some of these these issues than they expect, and definitely the authoritarian stop-and-search protest rights the Lords won't stand for this kind of whitewash, really. I'd be quite happy for them to get through the stuff about, you know, keeping roads named after ancient people that nobody can remember anymore, providing the authoritarian stuff didn't go through. I could I could buy that trade-off. Just keep them busy. Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah, you go do that. You, know you go do that. Name your road after Bernard Manning, if you like. Just don't mess with <laughs> anything else. Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the Slow Newscast from Tortoise... Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. 
The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not a, an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. Now, hands up who else has got a spider sense for when the yellow labels go up in Sainsbury's. If you're struggling to pay the bills, there's only one person in the country to blame, according to the Conservatives, and that is you. After George Eustace's comments that people should buy supermarket-owned brands to save money, who knew? And Ashfield MP Lee Anderson blaming food poverty on a lack of cooking skills. Minister Rachel McLean also said that people can work more hours or move to a better job to protect themselves from the cost of living crisis. See, it's dead easy. It all goes back to the Thatcherite article of faith that every budget is essentially a middle class household budget from the 1950s. Why are we so obsessed with displays of frugality and blaming people for their own penury? Now, Marie, as you said, you've lived in the UK for 13 years now, but I still think I can just about get away with this. Do we look weird to French people for going on about frugality all the time? Yes, I would say. So I think, yes and no. I, I think what I find quite odd is that weird fetishization of sort of like nearly misery and just saying actually, you know, it, it, not unlike that, well, you know, when I was a kid, we just mm. had peace pudding, you know, for breakfast, lunch and dinner every day. And look, I still have most of my limbs. Mm. Uh, so why are you complaining? I think it's more that is the kind of, psychology of like oh well you know we've all had it hard before so just be miserable like there's no question of fine even if you could cook you know every meal on 30p each you probably shouldn't have like that's not that's a miserable way to live like even if you can just about make it work yeah carrot surprise again <laughs> surprise it's carrot is there an equivalent to this in france is there a, a sort of self-flagellating thing not massively i think but Hmm. To make a different point, though, I think, and, I, and I'm nicking this shamelessly off, I think, Stephen Bush, if I remember correctly, on Twitter. But I think the problem, like, the, the one thing, you know, all these weird, wrong-headed sort of interventions by MPs um, have in common is that the problem is there's no policy. Like, I think that's why, like, you know, if they're going to keep sending Conservative MPs on telly and radio to talk about the cost of living crisis and the Conservative Party is not going to have anything to offer, these people are going to panic and say something insane. Like, that, that is just, I think that is a direct result of there not being a policy because they're being asked. And, you know, and, and you can tell with some of them, it's like, oh, God, oh, God, okay, just like, First thing that pops into your head, <laughs> you know, like the George Eustace thing, Jesus Christ. Um, yeah. so I, I, I think, you know, that it, I'm sure it's partly the weird, again, uh, relationship Britain has with poverty and food and stuff. But I think it's also there's nothing else to say. And yet there is, you know, time on air to fill. What is the impulse that drives them when there is nothing else to say to put out this kind of reflexive idea that somehow it's all easy? Anna? There's this really sort of strange kind of shoes we couldn't afford feet idea that <laughs> underpins the sort of grassroots of the Conservative Party, this pull up your bootstraps, if you work really hard, you can have anything idea. And it seems to completely detach itself from not only the reality of life in Britain today, but also the policies that the Tory party have put in over the decades. So this week, Lee Anderson went on TV and started um, rabbiting on about how if you learn to cook, you can you can feed your family fantastically on 30p. And it's his government in the 80s and 90s that completely overhauled the school curriculum, which meant that when I went to school in, in the early 90s secondary school, my food technology lessons were something like half an hour a week until I was 13. And we learned to make coleslaw and flapjack and that's it and then it was that section of the curriculum was replaced by things like IT that's probably a really good decision 
You can operate Deliveroo. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, That's probably a really good decision, but but the result is you can't then blame people for not having, you know, cooking from scratch skills. What we have to note as well is that the mirrors Mikey Smith pointed out that Leanne is absolutely right. You can cook meals for 30p a day. All you need is 50 quid, an Aldi with a walking distance, a t- within walking distance, a team of helpers, an industrial kitchen and a professional chef. And the who- time. And, and I have time. all of that personally. So, yeah. I'm yeah, there you go. Yeah, it's uh, Conte Towers. But, you know, so just on a quick French point, you know, we don't, like, we don't learn how to cook. We don't learn home skills um, at school in France at all. And yet, you know, we do manage. So I don't really buy the idea that, oh, you know, they don't learn this at school. Therefore, no one can do it is really an explanation. Lee Anderson is class of 2019, and obviously a lot of interesting people came in in 2019 on the Conservative side. Leader of the House of Commons, Mark Spencer, has now finally suggested that certain unsuitable individuals were able to, come MP- be able to become MPs due to the rushed announcements of the 2017 and 2019 general elections. Marie, I mean, you brush shoulders with these people. What, what is the particular character of the 2019, in, in 2019 intake, and why do they keep, keep saying stupid things like this? <laughs> Um, so I think, weirdly, so this is not really the first time that's happened. Obviously, it's happened on a grander scale this time. But I think you saw that with the SNP lot in 2015 as well. I think, you know, that happens. And, you know, and talking to all the journalists as well, that very much happened with Labour in 97 as well. If there's any form of sort of unexpected landslide, you will get so many weirdos in um, mm. because, you know, because there's not quite enough time to pick a candidate because they are quite often. So I know, uh, and I, I'm sure I've mentioned this before on this podcast, but um, so there's definitely one person... I remember for a fact he was given a completely unwinnable seat by the Conservative Party because it's someone who was like, well, he's been quite helpful in the past, so we can't just not put him up for any seat. But also we really didn't like him and he's a bit of an adult, so let's just put him somewhere really unwinnable. Mm. Guess what? He's an MP now. Have you seen the film <laughs> The Producers? It can happen. <laughs> um, so do you think that happened? No, but, but I think so. what's interesting about that intake is that they've not really been socialized in the same ways because normally you know an intake comes in and then um and, and then they're kind of you know because c- everything about british politics is so informal they get taken under the wing of you know some older mps from you know a similar faction or similar so like bit of the country etc and that's kind of how they learn the ropes but also get institutionalized to an extent whereas they came in and then see lockdown happened about four minutes later mm. Um, so they kind of went rogue. So they're still, if you talk to, I mean, th- there's a bit of a rift in the Conservative Party between them and like the rest of the Tories, effectively. Um, so I remember talking to a friend who's a former special advisor from the Cameron years, and she was like, yeah, they're like, yeah, busy like puppies, you know, they just get excited and pee on the carpet all the time. <laughs> so it's still a two year freshers week in the Tory party. Yeah. Justin, it's not just MPs that keep banging this frugality drum. There was um, a, a Times article on, on money-saving tips from earlier in the year kind of resurfaced this week. The lead on it was a family who are planning on swapping their 40 grand a year nanny for a 10 grand a year au pair and changing their Audi A3 for an electric Tesla in order to save money. And you look at it and you go like, I don't understand what's the thinking process behind this. I'm actually going to make a partial defence of the Times here, but our old magazine editor heads on. The first thing is you talk to the readers you've got. Yeah. And I think what makes that piece seem weird is that obviously it sounds completely tone deaf. It sounds, you know, really, really ill judged. But what is going to be absolutely toxic, I think, about the cost of living crisis for the Tories is that it's not just going to hit people at the bottom of the pile. To a large degree, the government do not care about those people mm. because they're not going to vote if they, if they vote at all. You know, then people who are absolutely desperate are not going to vote Tory anyway. 
they're probably fairly immiserated to start with. I mean, all right, this is pushing people properly below the waterline. In nakedly political terms, I don't think the government are... They're, they're like a sunk cost at this point. Where I think it really is going to worry them is that these ripples are going to go right the way through the economy and it's going to start hitting people in ways that, you know, all poverty is relative. You know, for some people going, OK, we're going to have to scale down from this car to that car or two holidays to one holiday... Okay, it's not the end of the world. It's not going to kill anyone. But they're the kind of things that reduce people's quality of life and they make them feel pissed off about the government. And they're like, well, I'm still working as hard, but I'm paying more taxes and I'm getting less at the end of it. And, you know, you think, again, the early 90s is kind of the obvious analogue here, which I can sort of remember. It's not people who lost their homes who did for the Tories next time they could vote. It was the people whose mortgages went up to like 14 or 15 percent and Mm. clung on by their fingertips but were absolutely petrified and they never trusted the government again. Now, they're the people that I think the government will be really worried about. And if you look and you start digging, there are all these kind of straws in the wind. Like the biggest growing, fastest growing retailers in the country are Lidl and Aldi. They've put on 2.3 million new shoppers in the past year. Now, that's not people who are starving to death. It's people who aren't going to Sainsbury's anymore, aren't Mm. going to Tesco's, aren't going to Waitrose. You know, that's the kind of thing where people who vote and who might vote Tory are not going to. Just on a quick note as well, I think it's slightly adjacent, but I wonder what's going to happen to the public discourse. I think this is exactly right, um, your point about the Times readers, etc. But I think it sort of reminds me of lockdown in a weird way, especially, you know, like with social media and everyone being on social media and that, you know, early on in the first lockdown. And, and I was, you know, part of the annoyed parties, but because you did have people who, you know, you knew had a garden and a big house and stuff and were like, oh, isn't it dreadful being locked in? You know, And I wanted <laughs> to fucking turn up to the house and be like, I live in a basement flat that's under 30 square metres. There is no windows in my bedroom. Fuck off. But, but you know, but, but obviously, which I, I, I did not do because, you know, of course, it was very hard for them as well. And I wonder if there's not going to be a similar thing with the cost of living crisis. Like, hmm. actually, I saw on Twitter, I was on the other side of that yesterday when I was talking about it um, with some people online and I said yeah for example you know if I were to have to move house tomorrow I currently live in zone two genuinely if and I can afford the same amount of money I would have having looked I would have to move almost certainly to zone four that's the only thing I can afford and so I listeners got quite who aren't in London tell them where zone four is uh, well busy yeah, the point is at the moment I can you know I, I can just take a short bus to go to central London which I do need to do for my job every day mm. and I would have to take a train which is again not the end of the well, but you know, also I've been living in the same neighbourhood for five years, and mm. no one wants to leave their area. Um, you know, and I got quite a lot of angry tweets from people mm. saying, you know, people are literally starving to death, and you're complaining about maybe having to move to Zone Four, and I'm like. Well, yes, but also, as you know, you said, Justin, I'm working just as hard as I used to. You know, I'm used to living in zone two. Why should I have to move? So I think Mm. in terms of national discourse, it is going to be quite interesting seeing what happens with everyone being hit differently, but being hit. Mm. I mean, yes, it will absolutely change uh, the, the conversation, change the discourse from middle class people around their willingness to tolerate some of the blarney coming out of Westminster around cost of living. Absolutely. But I just want to make a plea. We, we have a government here who is willing to tolerate because it's probably not electorally relevant. The fact that we now potentially have one million households with children living in deep poverty. That's not just poverty. That's not relative poverty as we used to define it 10 years ago. That's living on 50% of the median income. Mm. That's literally living in what charities like uh, Child Poverty Action Group and Joseph Roundtree Foundation call destitution. So we've got one million children growing up destitute. And 
it might not be relevant at the ballot box, but it, it bloody well should be. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I think, yes, you probably won't see that in the pages of the Times. But if the if the, the debate in the Times moves to Teslas and scaling down from three holidays a year to, to one helps to move... Uh, the conversation and that does have an impact well i'll be pleased for it yeah it's not like you're in the in the ballot booth and there's a box next to your vote saying and what please show you're working or your (laughs) reasons oh well that's not valid i'm sorry you're not allowed to not vote conservative i mean any government that doesn't care about the fact that that children are growing up this way shouldn't be allowed to continue for much longer Mm. but i think one other point there to that is that compared to say you know and i'm sort of old enough to remember the 1980s and how bad things looked then I think a lot of aspects of poverty have been rendered invisible by structural changes. So things like, you know, benefits are often, you know, paid automatically. You know, I'm, you know, I remember as a kid, we were seeing people queuing up for the, the dole office, mm. which like you don't really see anymore. You know, things like food banks, because people by their nature tend to use them furtively. And they're often things like churches. The one nearest me is in a you know Catholic church. It's not like a place with a big sign saying this is a food bank and people don't come out with bags that look like they're from a food bank. So I think a lot of these things are happening slightly below people's levels of consciousness, and often because, you know, either they've now been administered in a different way or people are embarrassed about them, so they happen quietly. And I think that has sort of allowed people to pretend that a lot of this stuff isn't happening. When, as you say, when you look at the numbers on this stuff, it's absolutely horrifying. Before we move on, Hannah, I want to ask you about one other aspect of the kind of the national frugality menu, this idea that uh, government's efficiency is suddenly a priority and we're going to sack 91,000 civil servants, which seems like a great way to deal with 91,000 families' problems with the cost of living. It seems the absolute acme of performative, you know, throw a bone to some retired guy in a country pub who says, you know what I'd do, I'd get rid of all of them. Is there any rationale behind this? And also, is it even likely to happen? I mean, it may happen. I expect what you'll see, some of this is performative in that uh, quite a lot of those will be early retirements, which actually cost the government quite a lot anyway. So how much of this is actually efficiency and how much of it is window dressing, that Mm -hmm. remains to be seen. But actually... The civil service is not where you want to be cutting jobs now. Uh, we're, we're in the middle of, as we've said, cost of living crisis. We've got massive problems, structural problems, problems created by Brexit uh, around our relationship and legislation uh, and our trading with the rest of the world. Why are we cutting the people who have the skills to actually manage this? I, I think we saw some of the embarrassing sort of performance around this with Jacob Rees-Mogg's letter to his cabinet office team saying, yeah. oh, I missed you because you're working from home. Here's a little sign note to see that yeah. I've noticed you're not here. Which I will leave on a hot desk, which is used by 10 different people in the course exactly. of the week anyway. That's exactly what I was going to say. Mm. That they've already done a brilliant job of rationalising the civil service office space to save money and that means that not everybody has a desk Mm. so the idea that because people are working from home on a a, a cleverly designed scheme to make sure that they save money on central london rent that someone's now getting a bollocking um, for not being there and that's seen as a great thing a kind of whip cracking taking control measure is just laughable i just loved the prime minister saying oh well when you're working at home you tend to wander around having a coffee and a big piece of cheese you work in number fucking 10 downing street you're running the country you literally Live and work at home. Yes. You have a live workspace. Finally, a requiem for a faithful friend. 
Last week, Apple announced that after 21 years, it was finally discontinuing the iPod, bringing to an end one of music's most revolutionary devices. When the first iPod was launched in 2001, it could store a thousand songs. A representative of Apple PR came round to the magazine that I was working at, and people crowded round it like it was a baby. Today, <laughs> there are more than 90 million songs on Apple's streaming service alone. There have been various iPod models over the years, including the Nano and the Shuffle and the little tiny one that looked like a badge. The iPod Touch, first released in 2007, is the last model to be discontinued. So what are our panellists' iPod memories? Justin, what, you know, were you an iPod person? I was quite a late adopter mm. on it, but I went um, iPod Mini, then the little remembered iPod Shuffle, which was mm. basically like a flash drive with a headphone socket, mm. and it was absolutely... Per- I won it in a raffle at email. <laughs> day. But uh, it was absolutely perfect for going running. How did it change the way you listen to music? I think what it did was it made the playlist the standard format rather mm. than where you're in... Rock music, it was the album. Dance culture, it was the mix. Mm. And then the playlist, the sort of curated playlist became the format because suddenly you could sort of pull these things together. You could sort of curate and edit things very sort of tastefully. Um, So I think that was the big shift from album to mix to playlist culture. I mean, did you find yourself approaching your own music collection differently or just spending hours and hours moving things around in iTunes or what? There was a lot of sort of shuffling around of things. And at the time, because I was working in magazines, you used to get sent uh, CDs all the time just before they came out. So you sort of rip everything off that. But it meant that the vast majority of what I was listening to, so I'd be sort of jogging along and every single song would be introdu- interrupted with a sort of robotic voice going, promotional, promotional. CD. <laughs> Do not sell or burn. Yeah. So to this day, when I hear The Old Man's Back Again by Scott Walker, it's <laughs> point where I'm still waiting for it to go promotional CD. I, I think uh, there came a certain point where actual legit releases like grime releases were putting promotional <laughs> CD do not resell so it seemed more crime became like a sort of yeah. audio artifact and it's yeah. Um, yeah I mean that's probably just I know it sounds as quaint to younger listeners now as the noise of like a cassette deck closing or something yeah. it's probably just some weird artifact or surface noise history. on the Portishead album kind of thing <laughs> Hannah, how about you nostalgic yeah how, how about you were you an iPod person no, I mean, here's the strange thing. I must be the only geriatric millennial around that never owned an iPod. Still How did you never manage have. to avoid Well, it? here's the thing. First of all, I had a Creative Zen, which was the cheap version of the iPod, which I bought in about 2003 when I got my first job after uni, and uh, because I couldn't afford a real one. And that was fine for a while. And then I was a very early integrator. So mm-hmm. I had a, I can't remember what it was. It would have been a Nokia something or other. And I uploaded my music onto that on the first, uh, the first point that you could do that. So... I, I kind of see why it's redundant because from day one I've had my music on my phone pretty much. By God, so you were like a, a, a refuse Nick followed by an early Yeah, well, adopter. I was a skint person followed by a refuse Nick, yeah. I remember the creative zen because I was working on music magazines at the time and everybody was trying to launch their iPod killer. And it was like the Arcos and the and the Zune, the hilarious Microsoft Zune, which will probably come onto it. I don't even remember that one. The Microsoft Zune was such a massive flop that it became a punchline in the Guardians of the Galaxy movie because he's been stranded in space for years. He's got, I've got this amazing thing. It's got all my music on it. And he produces a Zune. And the entire cinema erupts in laughter. Wasn't the Zune like the Betamax? Wasn't it actually, was it the Zune or the Creative, which was actually higher quality? The Zoom didn't was, take on, wasn't it like the Betamax VHS thing? I don't know, but it, the Zoom the Zoom was Bill Gates's gamble. And the mm. thing, the thing about the Zoom, you'll like this, Justin. You could squirt songs to your friends from your Zoom to their Zoom. That's what it's called. Squirt. Shall I squirt the songs here? <laughs> Please that, don't. That sounds so unedible. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Horrible. How about you, Marie? What's your uh, 
Um, so I actually come from a family of very frugal nerds. Um, so from very early on, my dad was like, why would you possibly want an iPod? When, after much Googling, I have found you this weird Chinese brand <laughs> <laughs> that does a thing that will break in three months, but yes. we can buy another one because it it's costs called 10 e-pod. euros. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, yes, I've weirdly also never had an iPod. But no, I think, with that being said, actually, that did bring back a lot of memories of iTunes, however, because I am, yeah. I mean, yeah, I've got ADHD. I'm very neurodivergent. So I spent, but I would say, definitely dozens of hours just assembling, curating, rearranging my music collection on iTunes and, you know, and making sure everything was by genre, by year, by album, by by everything. Mm-hmm. It, very soothing, actually. I mean, I would say nearly as good as therapy. Would recommend it. But yes, yeah, so I, I do sort of miss that now. Mm. I do also think that it did change the way people listen to music. I definitely abandoned the album at the point when I could just shuffle it all on my phone. So mm. once you've got shuffle... It's just, oh, this is fun. What's next? And, it did and that produce... was the end of the album. It's kind of sad. I miss it. But well, it got I mean, you me... can. It, it is still allowed to it listen is, to yeah. it. It's not like most people just don't I... do it, do they? they I just got still have it. Still an album person. It's still, yeah, they still yeah. exist. But I mean, I, I, I found that, I mean, it got me listening. Basically, I poured all of my music collection onto a hard drive and it meant that I listened to it more. So I got far more out of my music collection. But I would get these weird kind of moments of synchronous listening. I remember once I was on a bus reading a book about the First World War and I was Kaiser Bill's Batman came on. It's like, oh, psychic iPod. <laughs> that is what I'm doing. And I was on a walk around the Thames once on a you know kind of windy day and thousands of sailing by the Pogues came on. It's like, oh, great nautical moment. You know what I mean? Dark land, the spirits and the ghosts. I mean, two two instances in 20-odd years maybe doesn't really tell us very much. <laughs> Three's a trend. Absolutely, yeah. So why the, th- it's an odd situation because it, everybody's been talking for the past week about how fantastic the iPod was and how much they miss it. Why did it die if everybody loves it so much? It can't just be because the phone enables you to put everything in one place. I do think it's that, though, because I think, you know, cause I remember the iPod Touch coming out and I remember it feeling redundant unbelievably quickly because that's around the time when the rich kids basically at school started having iPhones and stuff. And it was like, oh, but why would you carry two phones effectively? It was like to be a separate yeah. digital camera. No, exactly. Yeah. I, I think yeah. to be fair, I, I think it was generally just that to be boring. But the iPod experience is different because the phone annoys you and nags you all the time. You listen to music, here's a tweet, here's a notification, somebody's WhatsApped you, somebody's WhatsApped you, here's a text, here's a news alert. I just want to listen to a bloody record. I have questions here, because... You, you can make it so your phone does not interrupt your music. Yeah, but then you forget and then you leave the phone off for hours and hours <laughs> and you miss something important. No. Much better oh, to how, have it how isolated. How do you live your life? You have to have an isolated music experience where you're not being interrupted by everything else. It's like the difference between reading a book and reading, an, reading a book on an iPad. But, you read a book on paper, you're not going to get somebody popping up and going, what about this thing on Facebook? I am- I think this comes down to personality style because I actually find that I can't think of anything worse than being so immersed in one thing that you can't also be distracted by something else. Maybe um, I think it's also the great lesson of really the well. digital age is that people will take convenience over lower quality. Yeah, mm. People don't care if an experience is lower quality or less engaging as long as it's convenient. And having one thing in your hand instead of two is convenient. Well, I've got the answer to the question, actually, because it was a trick question. I know why the iPod died, because Apple can't charge you to listen to music you already own over and over again. Mm-hmm. Apple transitioned to a service business. Apple wants to sell you £10 a month subscription to Apple Music. It wants to sell you apps. It wants to sell you things you've got to continue paying for. When it sold you an iPod, even for 400 quid. The music That's that goes on it. it. Yeah. yeah. So it's the end of that. So Spotify, it, Spotify destroyed the iPod. Spotify, Ooh. Apple Music streaming. The idea that you rent music rather than owning it. And that changes the relationship with the music as well. 
can I just have like a really quick hipster brag, which is that I joined Spotify so early at the time it was members only and you needed to be invited by oh, really? someone by email. That so, is impressive. Thank you very much. Thank you. That is exactly the reaction I wanted. Email from Daniel X saying, hey, Marie, would you like to join? (laughs) I've got the absolute reverse of that, which is that Spotify came into our office at Mixmag to try and get us interested. And I think Daniel X might have been among them. And I was just, I'm too busy to talk to those characters. (laughs) If I'd just given them 20 quid, I'd be sitting on billions now. More fool me. But you would still be doing this. I would still be doing this. the glory of it. Out of love, out of love. So as the iPod goes to Tech Valhalla, with all the other, you know, the Walkman and all the other famous products to be discontinued. If we could bring something back, what would it be? What are you bringing back, Justin? I'm bringing back the humble quarter-inch jack headphone socket on the phone. I would just like to be able to plug in a normal pair of headphones into my phone rather than having to use, like, crappy fire connections, wireless buds that are going to die. Get an Android. Just get an Android phone. On my walk here, again, I was running late because I was listening to music with headphones plugged into my phone. Marie, I'm a snob from London (laughs) who writes about things like trousers for a living. I'm not using an Android phone. (laughs) Also, he's not going to walk into a shop and say, I would like to buy a dongle, please. (laughs) He's not going to use the word dongle. Hannah, how about you? Well, it's similar um, in that it's related to headphones. I would like to just bring back affordable, good headphones rather than AirPods and Bluetooth-connected um, you know, devices or whatever. Mm. I miss a good old attached headphone. Uh, I don't see what the problem was. But then I have heard recently that apparently young hipsters, we're talking about 16-year-olds, like the youngest of the young generation, um, what are they, Zoomers, mm. uh, they are wearing connected headphones because it's retro and cool, which made me feel about a million years old. See, that, vindicated. Vindicated. How In about, your face, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't fancy dropping an, an earbud down the toilet like I'm sure happens every five minutes exactly. around the world. <laughs> How about you, Marie? What's, uh, what are you resurrecting? Uh, I'm actually going to cheat slightly and say that I think uh, disposable cameras should make a proper comeback. They've sort of made a comeback, but they're just incredibly expensive now. Mm. And so expensive to get um, the film processed as well. I just really, really like so I've been... Which, uh, God, I feel like this is really the hipster Marie episode and I can only apologise. <laughs> um, but I've basically been carrying a disposable camera in my bag on and off for the past sort of like 10, 12 years. Um, and I really like it, but it's generally it's got to the point that it's a very expensive hobby now. Whereas the entire point when I started it 10, 12 years ago was that it was just a cheap thing that I bought for a fiver and it take, you know, and cost me about seven quid to get it processed. It's now about 30 quid all in all, so like camera plus processing. So, yeah. What the listeners can't see is that um, Maria's actually wheeled a full turntable in with her connected <laughs> by a, a hand-powered generator because she's so, she's so analogue. Well, while we're on that note, I'd quite like to bring Polaroids back. Yes, I agree. They are wonderful. They Feature really of parties, mm. capture a moment, take it home and you love it. Yeah. Well, what I'd like to bring back, boringly, CD drives in computers so that you can get your yeah, CDs into the bloody point. thing. Yeah. Now, I've actually kept, I've kept a 20-year-old MacBook purely for this. So that when I pick up CDs for a quid down the charity shop, I can actually make them listenable. Why did they go? Because bloody Apple decided. And Apple's always making our decisions for us. Although you can buy an external one. Yeah, but, you know. I don't it's want... such a faff, having done that before. Such a faff. I have sat on it so many times. <laughs> like, somehow, it, yeah. Stop the faff. And that brings us to the end of this week's Bunker, which means it's now time for the panel's Escape Routes. One of the films, books, TV shows, miscellaneous, that have given them a break from the bruising world of politics. Marie, what's your Escape Route this week? 
Um, I have just finished reading uh, The Raptures by Jan Carson, mm. which is absolutely brilliant. So she's this amazing Northern Irish writer. I'm pretty sure I recommended The Firestarters, her other novel, a few months ago. Oh. And a friend with bought me her new one uh, for my birthday. She's just tremendous, that incredible writer. And also kind of talking to this one is set in a you know, like mostly Protestant uh, small village in the arsenal of nowhere, Northern Ireland, which is, you know, a bit of Britain I know very little about. Um, but it's also, you know, it's really beautifully written. The plot is incredible. Um, yeah, would recommend. Mm. Hannah, how about you? Well, uh, what's been distracting me most the last couple of weeks is two children under five with chicken pots. <laughs> but I can't actually recommend that no. as an escape route. So, um, no, I've been reading uh, Sorrow and Bliss by Meg Mason, which... Mm-hmm. Uh, Everybody has recommended. It's not um, not a new recommendation by any stretch, but I've only just come to it, and it is good as everybody says. Highly recommend. It's the most beautiful, but also um, quite witty as well. Uh, recounting of, of mental illness. It's a novel. It's not not memoir, but um, yeah, wonderful. Definitely, definitely worth looking at if you haven't heard of it. Justin. Uh, mine's less of an escape and more a full body immersion in. I finally got around to reading Stasiland by Anna Funda, oh, wow, yeah. um, with only 19 years after it was published. But um, this is her sort of narrative non-fiction account of what happened in East Germany behind the Berlin Wall. And it's absolutely brilliant. It's got a really sort of odd, very sort of like creepy feel to it. Mm. And it's not kind of like, you know, jump scares or anything, but it's just she really pervades that sort of supremely creepy feeling of what it's like to be in a place where everyone is probably spying on each other. I would just like to second that nomination mm. because that is honestly, I think, the best non-fiction book I've ever read mm. and I give it to everybody as present. Um, it, it's brilliant. Yeah. Not to cheer them up on their birthday. Yeah, <laughs> you it's go. up there with The Looming Tower by Lawrence Wright, which was my previous go-to. He's one of like the mass long history of Al-Qaeda in 9-11, which is like The Sopranos with AK-47s. That is an amazing book. Um, but I think this is up there with it. I'm really going to lower the tone with my escape route because... What else can I think about this week except football? It's impossible to think about anything but football. It's coming down to the wire. And we are, as a Liverpool fan, it is entirely possible we'll see the poetic perfection that Manchester City's last game is against Aston Villa, managed by Steven Gerrard, the great hero of Liverpool, who may possibly, just possibly, take the points off them to give the title to Liverpool. Listeners, if you could see the blank faces in this room right now... <laughs> You would see the gulf between me and the panel, with the possible exception of JQ. It's drama. I think it's Again, more than, I'm, it's I'm opera. A, I'm a lead supporter, so I mean, this well, you, is well, you, you have it. another form of drama. You have the fatalism to look forward to. I would like to just drop you on that because I'm a crew Alex fan. So. Oh, right. Oh, Alex. Yeah. Mm. I think it's more the fact that Andrew has presented the whole show in a vintage yellow away crown, <laughs> crown paint era Liverpool With kit. shorts and socks. And chin pads, I can full say. Kit, full, full kit presenter, yeah. Full kit presenter and one of those little double Celtic Liverpool <laughs> bobble hats. Yeah, but no half scarves. Well, that is the end of the show. Thank you very much to the panel for joining. Thank you, Marie Lacance. Thanks. Thank you to Justin Quirk. Thank you, Andrew. And thanks to our special guest, Hannah Fern. Thank you. Please do come on again. Um, We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. If you enjoy what we're doing, support us on Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. You'll get early episodes without adverts, and you'll also get a shout-out on the podcast like this. Hello from me and many thanks to Lizzie Loveridge, Philip Daniels and Max Dana. Many thanks from me to Maureen Custons, Deborah Berry and Beth Jones. And finally, welcome aboard and many thanks to Henry Williams, 
Simon Best and Martin Greenaway. We'll see you all next time. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Justin Quirk and Marie Lacan. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the producers were Jacob Archbold, Janos Ofrenievich and me, Alex Reese, wearing a 2007 Liverpool European away kit. Bloody awful. Assistant production from Alina Ganatra. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>